Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. Valiant Jones. I live in central Michigan, where I serve as a branch president, a uh, kind of rural branch. It's a uh, stake service missionary assignment, and it's giving me some new experiences and some new perspectives on, uh, on some of the smaller rural areas and how to lead there. I like uh, leading saints because it gives perspectives from the average church member many times. I mean, you've got many experts and I appreciate their input as well, but I also enjoy hearing from uh, the many average church members who are just trying to do their best to fulfill their callings and have learned a few things from their experiences. And I'm grateful to be able to support Leading Saints because um, you just provide such enjoyable content and uh, you're working to build the kingdom. And I think uh, your, your objectives and goals are, are very laudable. Welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. If you're new to Leading Saints, I'm glad you found us. We are a nonprofit 501c3 organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, much like this podcast episode. We have 400 plus episodes that I encourage you to jump in and uh, download and, and listen to. There's some great ones in there. Most of them are fantastic. We also publish articles online at leadingsaints.org. We have a weekly newsletter. We do virtual conferences, all sorts of ways that we publish content to help uh, just get further perspectives and understanding in the world of leadership as it relates to the context of being a Latter-day Saint. And in this episode, we have the opportunity to welcome back a more popular guest to the podcast, who is Professor Anthony Sweat. Now, most of you know that Anthony Sweat is a professor at BYU of Church History and Doctrine, I believe is his official title. I may have got that wrong, but he recently has come out with a new book called Repicturing the Restoration. And the online description says, while existing artwork that portrays the Restoration is rich and beautiful, until now many key events in Latter-day Saint history have surprisingly never been depicted to accurately represent the historical record. The purpose of this volume is to produce paintings of some of the underrepresented events in order to expand our understanding of the Restoration. Each image includes a richly researched historic background, some artistic insights into the painting's composition, and application section provides one way this history may inform our present faith, and in an analysis section offering potential questions that can be considered for further discussion. Through these new paintings, artist, author, and professor Anthony Sweat takes readers through the timeline history of pivotal events and revelations of the early restoration. This book is not just a wonderful art book, it is also a pedagogical book using art as a launching pad to learn, evaluate, apply, and discuss important aspects of Latter-day Saint history and doctrine as readers repicture the restoration. So that's on from the Desert Book website. It's published by Desert Book. And Anthony Sweat, I consider him a, a close friend now. Just so I learned so much from him. I love his artwork. I featured it uh, in my office. And a lot of the artwork that I own is in this book. And uh, so we have a discussion in this interview about this artwork, about how it relates to leadership, because there's many moments that uh, Anthony Sweat captures that are directly related to some leadership dynamic. And it is so fun to talk about. And just learning from Anthony Sweat is just always enriching. And, and I know you appreciate it as much as I do. So we're excited to have him back on the podcast. 
also throughout this interview, I realized it's an audio interview. And so we're going to reference various, uh, you know, visual paintings, right? So the date that this episode publishes, we're going to put all these images that we reference on our Instagram account. If you go to instagram.com slash leading saints, you'll be able to find us there, follow us there, and you'll see the painting. So as you go along, you can reference that. That link is in the, the show notes as well. So anyways, let's get into it. Here is my interview with Professor Anthony Sweat, the author and artist of Repicturing the Restoration. All right, today I'm connecting with Professor Anthony Sweat. How are you, Anthony? Great, Kurt. So good to be with you, my friend. Yeah, this is uh, one of many interviews we've done, and I hope there's many in the future, and I always enjoy our conversations. And I, I got to jump into it. You were recently called as bishop. I did, How's I that going? Oh, well, <laughs> that's a loaded question right there, my brother. It's, it's going. <laughs> that's the answer I'll give right now. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the transition, especially during a pandemic when things are shut down. I mean, uh, how did that all work out? Yeah, well, it's interesting to be called in the middle of the pandemic. I was called right as right as we were getting directives to try to start our ward meetings back up. So I've told people it's it's like, you know, being called, your train was derailed in 10 feet of mud and your job's to not only dig it out of the mud, but lay new tracks. So, right. yeah, so it's, been, sure. it's been fun. It's been challenging, rewarding, and all the above, like every leader who listens to these knows. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, hopefully you're, you're jumping into a few uh, podcast episodes that are, that are on the, the feed. I you think better you'll believe find. it. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, you're also, uh, you just finished a, a project that has been going a while, the Repicturing the Restoration book. Yeah. And uh, new art to expand our understanding. And I've always appreciated, you know, I've gone to Education Week the last few years, and I always make sure I attend your presentations. One, you know, I started college with the intent, as you did too, to sort of go into art. Uh, I got a two-year degree in art, and uh, now all I have to show for it is I'm a caricature artist, but uh, <laughs> I set down my paintbrushes years ago. And uh, you did the same, and now in the church history department, you are, you're able to, to mix these, uh, combine these worlds in some way. Yeah, yeah, I am. And that's, I, I got my, as you mentioned, I got my bachelor's degree in painting and drawing in fine art, and I always intended to use my art for religious purposes to teach. I always wanted to do religious art. And so it was kind of, even though God led me a different direction in terms of my full-time career to become a religion professor and an author and speaker, and I always kept painting and, and have painted uh, on the side because I love it, but also because I wanted to use it. And as I moved into my profession and particularly teaching church history and doctrine, I just noticed like, man, there are a lot of really important scenes from the Restoration that have never been visually depicted or they haven't been depicted uh, according to the historical record. So yeah. I made a list and started to tackle them. And 25 paintings later, there's this book project that walks you from the first vision down through the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, repicturing the restoration, looking at some things a little differently or things that have never been depicted before. Yeah. And that's, a, you know, you hear people can hear that and be like, oh, yeah, that's great that, you know, somebody's taken on to paint these things. But I don't think people truly or fully understand how much we are impacted day to day with art, with design, with everything. I mean, not just paintings, but even when we walk into a building, just oh, yeah. how it's the architect laid it out and how we're, how we're influenced to walk through that building. And even with art and the, the navigation of our faith, the development of a testimony, you know, growing up, and, and this is sort of the, the thing you hear, right? That, oh, well, there's this painting of Joseph Smith, like sitting down with the plates in front of him. And so we make assumptions and it's not like, that was necessarily forced on us. I mean, sure, maybe there's not enough pictures, and you've you've included some with uh, you know that translation process, maybe a little more accurate. But painting and art really influences us more than we realize. Yeah, most of it is subconscious. We don't realize yeah. that we're consuming those artistic images as our source material for history and for scripture, which is a huge burden and responsibility on the shoulders of artists. Because artists aren't always intending to be completely historically accurate. That's not the role of art. The role of art is to get us to inquire and express and feel and, and uh, search. And that's what the language of art does really well. But in that process, as artists do that and use their tools, we as consumers also have a tendency, particularly in the church, if I can be frank, yeah, we have a tendency to be very literal and we're literalists and we take things visually and consume them literally. And so we start to form our conceptions of scripture and our conceptions of history based off the art that we view. 
Yeah. I, I love, you know, you share various examples, even in uh, U.S. history. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the, what is the prayer at uh, the George Washington prayer? That they were the, all familiar with. Uh, see, right there, you know, if, if I said, tell me about George Washington's prayer at Newburgh, New York, um, <laughs> yeah. you have no idea. Or maybe it's yeah, a New never heard of it. called the prayer at Newburgh. Uh-huh. Never heard of it, right? Uh-huh. Um, no. And most of your listeners probably, that, that means nothing to them. The irony of it, that prayer is a very well historically documented prayer that uh, Washington wrote. And it's read every day at the wreath-laying ceremony at, at Washington's tomb in Mount Vernon. Yeah, we don't know it. But yeah. I can say to almost every... Right now, your listeners are going, oh, I think he means the prayer at Valley Forge. No, I don't mean that <laughs> prayer. But the reason why you and I know that prayer is not because we've ever studied any sources related to it. Right. We know it because of Brother the Freeberg. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, then there's been remarkable paintings of that that yeah. are touching and, yeah. and draw you towards George Washington and his yep. faith and, 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 and everything. And there's nothing wrong with that, no. but it's just, it is what it is. But it's the power of art. It shows how art embeds in our memory and art gets us to know narratives that otherwise we wouldn't know. And that's one of the driving purposes of this project is a lot of the narratives that we know, like Washington's Prayer at Valley Forge using a historical example, we know those and they're driven through visuals. We don't mm-hmm. necessarily know them and have them driven through history itself. So that's one of the reasons why I was like, you want to know what? Not a lot of people know, for example, that uh, women for a hundred years in our church's history, women gave healing blessings of faith. Now, to be very clear, not by virtue of the Melchizedek priesthood I hold, that's a modern conception right. and process that we've put on. But from the 1830s to the 1930s, a lot of people just don't know that that was a practice for 100 years that women blessed as a gift of the Spirit. And so one of the images that I did in there was a female healing scene through faith. Now, a lot yeah. of people know that, uh, for example, that, uh, well, I'll, I'll take a great one. You know, Michael detected the devil or Adam on the banks of the Susquehanna River when Satan tried to deceive Joseph Smith as an angel of light. Huh. Where's our paintings of that? Right, uh, that's that would be a so, great one to paint. So I did it. So yeah, right. Or or that we ordained Black African men to priesthood offices during Joseph Smith's time. Um, so these are the type of images that I was like, you want to? I, I want to tackle these. I want to paint these to help us more richly understand our history and to more richly understand our doctrine, our faith, and to have dialogue around them. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, just from the leadership standpoint, especially now with your perspective as a bishop, and sometimes I have a habit on this podcast to shoehorn leadership into everything. And maybe it's like, you know what, sometimes we hang out pictures and it's great. But <laughs> what's like, what should leaders understand, especially now, I think in the last year, uh, leaders got sort of a, I don't know, like a, a standard art. These pictures are appropriate to hang up in the, in the uh, building. And, yeah. you know, you can't just hang up everything. And I remember my time as bishop, like, there's this picture of I think it was a painting, an older painting of of Jerusalem, and you'll see it around. And, and I'm like, you know, Jerusalem's great, but I want to hang up some other pictures. And I like tried to take it off the wall. <laughs> it was like bolted, bolted on there. Off. I'm like, yeah, oh, alarm man, start well, going off. Right, exactly. And so I'm like, well, I guess I'll just put up with that. And I did for five years. I looked at that painting. But I'm curious, like, what role should leaders consider as it comes to art? How, how can they use it as a tool? I mean, is there anything we could learn there? Yeah, I think their art has a role in leadership. If you take President Hinckley, when President Hinckley said teaching is the very essence of leadership, art teaches. And so it's not shoehorning at all to talk about art and leadership. That's great, Kurt. Good. All right. (laughs) Uh, If teaching is the very essence of leadership, then art teaches. And every leader, all of us need to be conscious of what our art is teaching. I think that's one of the things that the church, when in this last year, when they sent out this directive on art in our foyers in particular, it's the institutional church saying, hey, those foyers aren't about Pinewood Derby announcements and they're not about, you know, they should be nice. They should be inviting. They should be beautiful and they should testify of Jesus. And so when somebody walks into our building, they should immediately know that we believe in the saving divinity of Jesus Christ and art is teaching that and leading that. So I hope people grasp that concept that art is part of leadership and art is part of teaching. So, number one, to follow those directives, but also number two, I think in places where you do have the prerogative to select your own art and to hang it up, whether that's in your office at home or even your bishop's office or, um, 
or if you just look at the images that are put up on bulletin boards or in the primary room, ask yourself this, this penetrating question. What does this art say? What is it teaching? And the greatest question is, who is this art making feel welcome or part of a community here? People need to see themselves in art. It's, it's really important that we see ourselves represented visually. So the better that we can represent our congregations, our, our population internationally uh, with diversity, the better that people will start to say like, yes, this, this is my community. I see myself here. Right. It's, it's really important. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And, and especially when, you know, you get outside the Wasatch Front, there's um, some diversity that needs to be represented and inside Was- the Wasatch Front. But just to be aware of it, right? Like, because like, I'm sure the five bishops before me sat in that office and you could ask them <laughs> in the middle of their service, what's hanging up in your wall? And they'd be like, uh, I, I don't remember. Right? Yeah. So just sort of being being aware of like when people walk into that foyer, what are they, what are they seeing, you know? And, and there are, I know my, my brother in a state presidency, he, you know, they contact the the facilities management and, yep. and use some of their budget. And, and you'd be amazed how much you can change in a, in a church, you know, refreshing the art, or I know some buildings will still have the 1980s, you know, regular images on there, which uh-huh. maybe it's time to refresh those, you know, because yeah. there's so much great art, especially that the church is, and is the, made available. The church is doing a great job of trying to procure and make available uh, art that helps promote that kind of inclusion as well. Yeah. I mean, just ask yourself simple questions of how many pictures of Jesus are up? You know, I know your episode with John Hilton and I have looked in the, into this and, and uh, you know, do we show images of Christ and his atonement, his crucifixion, uh, Gethsemane. Do we have images of women? Do we have images of people of color? These are all, in, they're, they're very important to try to say these, we, we, these are the things we love. These are the things we value. These are the things we teach for our members of our congregations. Yeah. And I, I'm just thinking like, in, again, going back to the bishop's office, you know, the images that you intentionally hang up in there can be a tool for you as, you know, you talk about the atonement in there or Jesus yeah. Christ or yep. forgiveness or, you know, be really intentional about that or you know even having images that you can pull out to to teach you know that's sort of the classroom that never gets really talked about i mean there's nothing more than happens in there than teaching whether it's from the bishop or from the spirit you know yeah exactly Um, so to be really intentional about that so that's great anything else as as far as the the tool of art and as from the leadership standpoint how we could use art yeah the the only other thing i'd say is don't you know even though my my purpose of my project that i've been working on the last six years is very historically based and trying to represent some things from history that maybe haven't been represented before like we would do a great service to all of our ward members to just give a disclaimer that art is meant to represent concepts or ideas it's not meant to be interpreted as an official doctrinal pronouncement or to be interpreted literally. That's just so important. Otherwise, yeah. we get people who think you can't show a picture of an angel with wings as, yeah. as though somehow we're, you know, because we know angels don't have wings, as though that's central to our doctrine or something. But sometimes people get caught up on that. Like, you know, somebody will hold up a picture of Harry Anderson's beautiful painting of the second coming, and they'll say, well, the problem with it, this isn't doctrinally correct, because we know according to section 133, that Christ will come in a red robe, not in a white. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not do that. Right. Because then what that does is that subconsciously tells our learners that art should be always historically and doctrinally accurate no matter what. Whereas, you know, sometimes art is meant to simply inspire and invoke. And like, let me give you one, just one example. In one of my paintings in Repicturing the Restoration, I painted God really big, like huge, like he's 30 feet tall. Now, <laughs> that, that's not doctrinal. That's not, that, there's no united statement from the first presidency and quorum of the 12 on God's height. Right. But the reason why I did that is I wanted to send a, a concept that God is big and that God is bigger than us. And so that's using the language of art, using symbol and metaphor to try to teach that kind of a concept, which art can do a great job at. So that's it. That's just another big picture perspective is when you are using art to teach, learn how to be visually literate 
to use art to do the great things that art does, not to pigeonhole art into always being 100% historically and doctrinally accurate. And if anybody's listening to this right now going, well, it should be. Um, <laughs> right. I, I lay down a challenge to you to try it yourself. Right. Most yeah. often people who want art to be perfectly historically accurate have never picked up a paintbrush themselves. Because the moment you do, you realize that you have to make decisions to communicate things. You know, Freeberg one time sent, said, there's, there's no tube of paint that says, I don't know. You have to paint something. So when we paint God, you don't know what God looks like. Neither do I. Does that mean we don't paint him? I don't know how tall he is. I don't know what his skin color is. I don't know what his facial features look like. But I still need to represent him so that we can try to connect with him. So let art connect. Don't yeah. try to make art pigeonhole it into it has to be 100% accurate. Otherwise, the language of art gets silenced. Yeah. And I, I feel like as I've heard you teach those concepts, I feel like there's a deeper, that concept goes beyond art where there may be somebody who raises their hand in a Sunday school class and makes an interpretation about a gospel principle or doctrine. And some people may hear like something they say and think, well, and, and dismiss everything they're saying. When in reality, we're all sort of just trying to interpret doctrines and things in a way that uh, help us apply and see progress yeah, in life. Uh, that's that's a know. great application, you know, on a broader scale. I mean, we're all just being translators, aren't we? We're all just being yeah. interpreters. And just like how scripture is interpreted by individuals, images are simply an artist's translation. It's one person's interpretation of a scene. Yeah. And I think just obviously you have the skill and ability to pin up pick up a paintbrush and, and do these images. Others may have a skill of, of being an orator and, and talking and speaking in a way that, you know, they're illustrating, they're painting a picture with words that uh, maybe, you know, hey, that's not exactly right. But no, we're, I think there's a deeper meaning we can learn from their, their yeah. interpretation yeah. as we make our own, you know. So. Yeah, I do too. Well, let's jump into to some of these pictures. You know, I've, as I've seen you present about these pictures as you were working on this project, there's some that just really stood out to me like, wow, there's some great leadership concepts in there. I have a few that I definitely want to get to, but uh, anyone that, that you want to start with that, that really... No, let's jump in the ones you okay. want to talk about, Kurt. Well, I love the Joseph Smith and is his brother, is it Samuel? William. His brother? William, okay. William. It, it's Joseph and William, the, the wrestling match that happened. I'm mean, talking about an, an <laughs> image or a, an instance during church history we nearly, nearly ever talk about. Yeah. You know, most people, if you said, tell me about Joseph's brother, they would tell you about Hiram mm -hmm. or they might tell you about Samuel. Mm -hmm. they, they don't talk about William very much, right. which there's, there, there may be a reason why. But ironically, William was a member of the original Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He's one of the first 12 called in 1835, February of 1835. Not Hiram, not Samuel, William. And the mm -hmm. uh, reason why we, we might, where Hiram is really steady, William is very unsteady. He's, you know, Joseph called him a fierce lion, if that and then talk about how he was unsteady in William's patriarchal blessing that he gave him. But, you know, the instance you're referring to, I think has some great leadership principles in there. In that William, the story is that William, as an apostle, was holding a debate in his home. And the debate, to cut to the chase, got a little out of hand. Joseph attended the debate and said that the debate shouldn't continue. William wanted the debate to continue and uh, kind of shoots back a, a sharp response to Joseph. And Joseph probably should have walked away, but his pride got the better of him. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a leadership time when you just want to zing somebody and, uh, and you're thinking, oh, yeah. I shouldn't say this, but I say it anyway? Yep. And yep. that's exactly what Joseph did. Joseph was about ready to leave, but then he later writes a letter and says, but as I thought about it, I considered that I helped build this house that you're living in. I have a right to talk in my father's house, and I have a right to put you in place as your older brother and as the president of the church. So Joseph does and comes down hard on him, and it, it enrages William. And before Joseph knows it, William jumps up, and from what can be deduced from the sources, William physically, violently attacks his brother, Joseph, the prophet. And contrary to our, back to art, contrary to all of our church videos we watch where Joseph Smith is the strongest person on earth, 
William gets the better of him and, and beats him up. <laughs> so much so that Joseph couldn't get out of bed the next day. And like a great older brother, Joseph writes him a letter and says that when he saw that William was coming at him, he was trying to take his coat off. And if, he, if Joseph would have got his coat off, he would have, he would have pummeled him, you know. Uh, but as it was, his coat, he got caught in his coat and William beat him up. But the reason why I think it's just a great story is because for a number of weeks, Joseph and William's relationship is really, really strained. And um, as it would be. Yeah. Joseph leaves a number of journal entries and, on it. And they'd write letters back and forth trying to reconcile, but they just can't quite reconcile. Each of them, William makes a humble confession, but Joseph says, but I still read in your letter that you think that I gave you reason to act that way. And Joseph forgives him, but then kind of zings him again and in the letters. And that goes back and forth for a few weeks until finally there's a family intervention right after New Year's. And um, Martin Harris is there. Joseph Smith Sr., the father is there. John Smith, their uncle, is there. And they just get together face to face. They they air their grievances. They both confess their faults. Joseph says the spirit of love and forgiveness what was present. The tears flowed fast and they frankly forgave each other. So to me, I just think it's a beautiful example. There's a lot to learn from it. There's, and I don't think it's negative. Like I hope that anybody right. hearing that story doesn't think that I'm being critical of Joseph. You know, leaders are human. And, uh, and sometimes we do overstep our bounds. Sometimes we say things that maybe we shouldn't say. Sometimes we do hurt people's feelings. And by the way, sometimes people hurt us intentionally. And there's a great lesson there where, where Joseph and William model for us that in our weakness, the, the cure to that is not to be perfect because none of us are going to be perfect. The cure to that is to be humble, to ask for forgiveness and to extend forgiveness. Yeah. And I, I just love that story for those reasons. And uh, obviously, if a if a fight breaks out in ward council, you can just say, "Well, this has happened before." This right? has happened before. Just make sure you get your coat off it. first. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. But uh, truly, obviously, it's rarely. Uh, I'm sure there's some instances, but of uh, a phys- it's rarely a physical fight breaking out in these council meetings. But I think it's you know this is what I love learning about church history is just the rawness of it, where it got intense at times and people completely disagreed with Joseph. Sometimes Joseph completely disagreed with others. And with hindsight, we look back and think remarkable revelation came from all of that, you know? And so as things get tense or there's conflict or heated discussion at times in a council meeting, to me, I would, I'd be more comfortable as a leader seeing it lean more that way, knowing that, you know, we're really passionate about this. We're getting into building the kingdom rather than everybody saying, well, whatever you think, Bishop, you know, like just go with it. You know, what's great about that, Kurt, in context of that fight, Joseph's problem was that as they had this debate, the elders were debating a subject. That was the whole point of it. Joseph's problem, the reason why he wanted to shut it down is because he didn't feel like it was following the proper principles that a council should follow. He felt like there was too much pride. There was too much trying to prove a point, you know, to quote it, there was too much trying to be right instead of get things right. That's what Joseph didn't like. I don't think Joseph Hmm. or anybody is has a problem with disagreement. Joseph actually even calls for disagreement. He says one time, I don't want to forever be surrounded by a set of doughheads in his councils. As you're saying, like, this, sure, Bishop, whatever you say, that's, that's not the point. Uh, Joseph says, I want people to speak their minds freely. He, In other words, he doesn't want to be a, people just to be a bunch of yes men uh, or yes women. And at another time, Joseph says, you know, one of the reasons why we can't separate the gold from the dross is because we do not agree to disagree long enough to get to the pure gold. Uh, those are just beautiful principles. Yeah, I love it. There's a difference between disagreement and violence or hurt and anger. And we need to be more comfortable with, with respectful disagreement of viewpoints that don't resort yeah. to pride and violence. That was the problem with the debate in the whole first place is that's where it was going. Yeah. And I think that what a great question a leader could ask, whether a bishop in a ward council or a, a president in a presidency meeting asking, have we disagreed long enough on this to really make a decision? And is it, should yeah. it be that easy of a decision? And, and that may spark some additional yeah. inspiration yeah. and discussion. We haven't agreed, disagreed long enough. That's a great quote. And we shouldn't, you know, be comfortable sitting in the disagreement for a while without resorting to 
just trying to get our way and pulling our coats off and punching somebody, you know? Yeah. And maybe uh, put a sign up that says no dough heads allowed. No, and, no dough heads allowed. With, with a quote of Joseph Smith. That's and, right. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Love that. All right. One, uh, probably my favorite, like I'm obviously there's, I have an Anthony sweat uh, painting behind me here as we record, obviously the audience can't see it. Then I have my, uh, the one you did of Joseph Smith, yeah. rough stone, it's rough stone, yeah. right? All the rough stone that, yep. that you did. And we've talked about that before. Maybe we'll touch on that again. But if there's, if, if my next, uh, you know, Anthony Sweat purchase were to happen, which it probably will once I move into uh, to my new office, it's the, I love the diverse angels. Tell yeah. us how that came to be. And I think there's, because to me, it just, it, I feel so much leadership and as far as like revelation and just that wrestle that leaders go through to yeah. seek more inspiration. But tell us about it. So that painting shows, I'll try to describe it for your, for the listeners. It shows Joseph kneeling down. It's in a blue kind of background that's symbolic. Blue is often a symbol of eternity. And you have all these angels. There's six of them. And they're literally diving down head first. And they're each holding a symbolic item that they're offering to Joseph. I painted that for two reasons. One of the, the title of the painting comes out of section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph starts to speak of all the angels that have ministered to him. And he speaks of Moroni, and he speaks of Peter, James, and John, the voice of God in the chamber of Father Whitmer, which a lot of people don't know what is, and there's a painting in there about that. But then he also says the voice of Michael, the voice who we understand to be Adam. He says the voice of Gabriel, who we understand to be Noah, the voice of Raphael, which... Who is the angel Raphael? I don't know. Yeah, no clue. And I've, I've researched it. There's, there's different theories on it. There's no doctrine or stated revelation or, or united mm. statement. Or, but, and then Joseph says, and of divers angels, each delivering their keys, their powers, their dispensations, their glories, line upon line, precept upon precept. To me, it's a beautiful. So I wanted to represent these angels who we don't quite know who they are and what powers they've given for a twofold reason. One, to show that this church is authorized, which we know that. Uh, this church is authorized. When we say the church is true, we're not necessarily saying the church is perfect, because it's not. We're not mm -hmm. saying the or it's not the organization that makes the church true, because the organization has changed. It's not the knowledge that makes the church true, because knowledge continues to be given. It's not that we don't ever do anything wrong because mistakes have been made. What makes the church true is that the church is authorized by angelic messengers dispensing keys to govern the kingdom of God and administer its ordinances. If we can just grasp that concept alone, when our board members say things like, well, I don't think the church is true because of blank you'll often find that their criticism of the church not being true is that they've set up their own straw man argument, that they've set up a false idol or a false premise of what makes the church true. And that then when history or experience turns out that 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 they've set up doesn't hold to be true, then they say, well, then it's not true. The church isn't true. Whereas the only thing that's not true is the premise that they set up themselves or that has been set up by others um, for them. You know, the, the, the keys of the kingdom, as, as Elder Holland said, what makes this the true church indispensable and indistinguishable or uh, unique from all others is the keys of the priesthood, the keys to govern and direct the work of God on the earth. That's what makes it true. That's a huge point to grasp, number one. But then number two, as we work with our members, and teach them, and there's issues to work through, and answers we don't know, and things that are unresolved, just point to that and say, yeah, yeah, who's the angel Raphael? And help them see that there are things that are yet to be revealed, yet to be resolved, yet to be clarified, line upon line, precept upon precept, in this ongoing restoration, that will one day crescendo into God's will being perfectly known and done on earth as it is in heaven, but we're not there yet. So yeah, that's what I want that image to represent and, and remind well, some of the parts of it that I want to remind people right. about. And to me, that's just because I remember those, you know, lonely nights or the long meetings as a leader who hold, who held keys. And, and I'm just trying to, 
seek deeper revelation and just this image of those angels, you know, diving towards me yeah. uh, is yeah. it's inspiring, you know? Yeah. So is there, so, you know, obviously in this image, you uh, depict these angels actually diving. Yeah. Is there a yeah. different, because it says diverse angels. Yeah. I guess I've always heard that as in like diverse, diverse. angels yeah. with diversity, right? Like, is that? No, Kurt, your, your interpretation is wrong. And uh, okay. my, my picture is gospel. <laughs> no, that's why we, that's why we have you on here. Again, again, <laughs> these are all interpretations. So I, I purposely right. am doing a play on words. Okay. Of, all right divers both of them diving but also representing diverse and and in the image yeah. by the way i did paint the angels diverse there's right they represent different nationalities and, and races uh in there yeah so love that cool well i thought maybe there's this deep greek root or something that i missed <laughs> and that i wish <laughs> anyways i'm not an etymologist <laughs> so i couldn't say nice what about the there's one the initiation to the school of the prophets and i just the way that you i always appreciate you know, when an artist takes an image and, and just does it from a point of view that you wouldn't have expected. And, and we're in this imager, it's from the viewer of, of the painting, you are, or the perspective of the, the viewer, you're looking in into a room, not you're not in the room, you're not in the room. but as this, it's into the room. Tell, tell us about that. And, oh, and any Kurt, concept. You're, you're so good, brother. Uh, that's exactly <laughs> what I want you to do with images like this is to interpret them and ask yourself questions like, why did the artist choose to depict it that way? So the viewer is standing, it's in the Newell K. Whitney store, if, if your listeners have ever been lucky enough to go to Kirtland and go to church history sites. You know that there's that second floor in the Newell K. Whitney store where Joseph held the School of the Prophets. And in that uh, room, that's where uh, the earliest efforts began to form kind of some of the beginnings of temple ordinances. Now, they weren't temple ordinances because I wouldn't paint a temple ordinance. Joseph did not describe it as a temple ordinance. Joseph said that they washed their feet, kind of like, and he said just how Jesus washed his apostles' feet. And there's plenty of paintings of Jesus washing his apostles' feet. Joseph said, we washed their feet so that we could be unified and have our hearts knit together in love. But section 88 also says that they were to be washed so that they could become clean from the blood of this generation, is what section 88 says. So Joseph did that, and that will start to lay the groundwork for what later develops uh, as what we know as initiatory in the church today, or the washing, the symbolic washing and anointing in the temple that begins to take place in Kirtland and later in Nauvoo. So the reason why I painted that one that way, I purposely placed the viewer, the point of view of the viewer outside the room looking in, but the doors open. It's suggesting this idea that... uh, this school of the prophets that Joseph is going to start, that originally it was only for a select group of people, but that ultimately the, the door is open to us all. And I hope that every priesthood leader and church leader, Relief Society leader, young women's leader, young men's leader, when they hear this, that they realize that radically what has happened in the temple today is we have been invited into a school of the prophets. Uh, that is a huge concept to grasp. The modern day school of the prophets is now that door is open to all of us through the Holy Temple. And when we go into that temple, we are initiated, washed, anointed, taught, clothed, instructed, make covenants. That is so huge that in the Old Testament, the only people who were washed and anointed, put on priestly robes, and went into the holiest room representing the presence of God were prophets, priests, and kings. Today, every single person who wants to is, has that privilege, uh, women and men. Man, if we can help our members grasp that about what's happening in the temple, what the endowment is trying to do, that'd be a great blessing for our members and for our families to understand. Yeah. And, and I just love the concept of initiation. Obviously, you know, the temple has its own way of doing that uh, to us as, as children of God. Um, but also, I think in the context of leadership callings, you know, if, if you were to make me write a list of my top 10 best friends, I would guess seven of them would be people I met through a bishopric, a leadership calling, where I was had the opportunity to sit in a room and petition inspiration and guidance from God in our role. And so it's this brotherhood, right? Or a sisterhood that, that leaders get the opportunity to experience. And 
oftentimes maybe, you know, a Bishopric member moves on and you call a new guy and, you know, you sustain them in, in SAFRA meeting and set them apart. And then it's like, uh, well, hey, good to have you. Let's uh, let's talk about the brownie uh, activity next week or whatever, you know. But to really like take an intentional step, and I'm not saying it should be, you know, washing feet or anything, but have some type of initiation process where they feel like you're in our brotherhood now. Like we have a deep divine purpose here and you're a part of us now. I think that sometimes gets lost with just sort of the turnover of different callings and administration and, all right, you're set apart, like, all right, ward clerk, mark that in the in the computer system, right? But to really, I think Joseph, whether he was taught this or he definitely understood it, of that initiation into the school of prophets. Like we're not just getting together to talk about Bible verses here or Book of Mormon verses. Like this is a special school that you're a part of and as a brotherhood where we can learn more about God. That's that's a great application, Kurt. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's that's I like that. Well that's what you were meaning by that's what putting I mean this by it. first that's right. yes, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. I love it. Yep. Um we just have a few minutes left. Where, uh, where which ones do you want to hit on before we wrap up? You know, I I think another great leadership one would be uh, I called it Sydney's sermons, hmm. and some listeners may not know, so I'll give a little history to it. But I painted this uh, this painting of Sidney Rigdon delivering. He he delivered two really really influential sermons in the summer of eighteen thirty eight. One is known as the Salt Sermon, and one is known as the July Fourth Oration. Unfortunately, both of these sermons had really negative impacts on the church. Uh, nothing like, by the way, being asked to give a talk and you know, 180 years later, people are doing paintings of them talking about how, what a negative impact it had on the church. But, but the, these ones did. Sydney was a great orator, as many people know. But what happened was, if I can back up, in Kirtland, well, in Independence, Missouri, we get kicked out because of external apostate, or external mobs in Independence when we're trying to establish a new Jerusalem. The church doesn't fight back we turn the other cheek and we get kicked out. And then in Kirtland, right after we build the temple, we have internal dissension that drives us out of Kirtland. So now we've lost Zion, the city of Zion anyway, and we've lost our temple in Ohio. We've now gathered to far west Missouri. And basically the question by church leadership is, what do we do when this happens again? What do we do when there's internal dissension and apostasy? And what do we do when there's external mobs? And the decision this time is made to fight back. And they're making that decision based off section 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants. But Sidney delivers these two sermons in Far West. He says, okay, now that we're here in Far West, number one, the salt sermon. He says, listen up, all you apostates who are here in Far West. If you've lost your faith in the Restoration, if you've lost your faith in the First Presidency, if you're trying to undermine them, if you don't sustain them, you are good for nothing. You are salt that has lost its savor, and you should be trodden under the foot of men. And he <laughs> wow. was, wow, he was serious. Um, yeah. One person said that they overheard Sidney Rigdon say he wanted to erect a gallows on the public square to hang any apostates. Wow. So, uh, wow. based off that sermon, there is a group that forms known as the Danites, and I don't have time to go into here. If I can give a plug, is so, there? Don't you have? A, yeah, I was going to say you have a I great episode about podcast them. plug. Yeah, if, please if you do. Listen to the Why Religion podcast, Letter Why Religion. Um, my colleague Alex Baugh has done a lot of research on the Danites. Listen to the episode called the Missouri Danites. Basically, they're an oath-bound vigilante group who takes it upon themselves to warn out these undesirable people from a community. And when they hear Sidney Riggins' sermon, they're like, okay. And they go knock on people's door, in essence, and say, hey, do you believe in the first presidency in the church or not? If not, you best be gone by tomorrow. Wow. And they drive them out of far west Missouri, the, uh, the apostates. Then Sidney Rigdon on July 4th, delivers another sermon called the July 4th Oration. This one is more aimed at external mobs. And he basically says, okay, we've driven out the internal apostates. Now, if there's any external mobs out there, if you guys come after us, if you guys try to take away our rights, it will, he says, quote, it will be a war of extermination between us and you. He says, we have turned our cheek when smitten and we've turned it again and again, and we are tired of being smitten and we will no more be smitten is what he says. So that he is the one that lays down the term war of extermination. 
And in essence, that is one of the things that starts to fan the flame that leads to the Mormon-Missouri War in 1838 with the external mobs that have us end up being exterminated from the state of Missouri and Joseph Smith imprisoned in Liberty Jail. Now, to the point, so now that you know the history, mm-hmm. when Joseph Smith is in Liberty Jail, we all know that part of his letters that he writes have become canonized. They're canonized in section 121, 122, and 123 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Every leader who's listening to this, I could say right now, quote this from memory. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only by threats, (laughs) vigilante groups, force, violence, fear, intimidation, right? That's what section one. Oh, no. That's not what I remember. That's not what I remember either. (laughs) Maybe long suffering. Yeah. uh, Patience. Only by patience, (laughs) long suffering, gentleness, meekness. Love unfeigned, kindness, pure knowledge, without hypocrisy, charity. Um, that when we exercise the opposite of those, to, op- to exercise control or de- unrighteous dominion, amen to the priesthood and authority of that man. In context, in, and by the way, just after those verses in the letter, Joseph says, we have learned by sad experience that it's the nature and disposition of all men, of almost all men, that they'll begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Let our sufferings by the wickedness of Dr. Samson Avard suffice. And that's a reference to the Danites. Hmm. So we're not used to interpreting section 121 on those verses of proper priesthood leadership in this context of Sydney sermons and the Danites, but that's where they're coming from. And it's a great lesson on us as leaders on how we do have righteous influence. And that's why I wanted to paint that painting of Sydney giving these sermons. There's nothing wrong with giving a passion sermon. I mean, look at Elder Holland. Right. When it becomes wrong is when we start to use violence and fear, intimidation, threats, coercion, unrighteous dominion to try to get our way, to try to overrule or overpower and and in particular, to try to force righteousness. Uh, yeah. It, it just doesn't happen. So uh, we have learned by sad experience from from that from that part right. of our history. Right. You know, obviously, from a leadership standpoint, my favorite part of this image is the uh, Joseph and Hiram on the on the stand, uh-huh. as they say, you know, looking at each other. I've often given that look to one of my counselors and thought, what is he saying? Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. How uh-huh. am I going to fix this? How, right? Yeah, Joseph, what yeah. Is go- yeah, I painted Joseph and Hiram. Historically, from the sources, Joseph and Hiram were sitting on the stand during the July 4th oration, kind of, you know, and I, I have Joseph and I kind of looking at each other like, do we approve of this? Now, uh, to be totally transparent, we can't lay all the blame on Sydney. It's, it's not known to what extent Joseph was aware of all the doings of the Danites. Hmm. But Joseph did stand up later and say that it was a good sermon and that Joseph approved of it. Oh, nice. <laughs> so Joseph himself had to learn these priesthood principles. Yeah. Uh, so it yeah. might be in section one, 121 that the Lord... That Joseph's talking to himself also. Yeah. And that's what I just love, you know, throughout this, your the pictures you've shown that uh, there's a learning process of leadership happening. And yeah. uh, we like yeah. to, you know, we Joseph Smith is our George Washington. I mean, he, yeah, he was flawless. I mean, he could bench press as much as we can imagine. And, uh, you know, we just, and, and he was so remarkable. I have so much respect and can't wait to meet him someday. But I, I'm inspired. And that goes maybe to that, the image that I have that I appreciate so much when I look at just, the, you know, the rough stone picture of Joseph, he just looks like a struggling leader. And I just have so much empathy to him. Yeah. And, and when I look at that, and it gives me so much inspiration to keep going, keep trying, keep figuring this out. And now yeah. we're hundreds of years later, we look back and think, wow, like that like what, was a remarkable time. And so much good. Yeah. yeah. What he did was remarkable. I'm, good. I'm, I'm so. glad to hear you say that, Kurt, because that's, that's my hope. I hope, and I hope nobody hearing me relate some of these stories or my doing these paintings try to think that I'm trying to diminish Joseph Smith. In any way, these paintings and these stories and these things from our early church history make me love him even more. He, he, is, he is a prophet among prophets. But I, I think we're all somewhat suspicious of narratives where people come across as flawless. And Joseph Smith, you know, the, the, as, as one writer has said, the, the gospel is not a celebration of God's ability to work with perfect people. It's a celebration of God's to w- ability to work with imperfect people and extend his perfect grace. 
and, and still to do mighty works through them. And that's what I see when I see images like this. It's people learning, people growing, people repenting, people forgiving, people relying on Jesus and his grace, people grasping power of priesthood keys and principles, line upon line, precept upon precept, and moving forward in the restoration and doing great work. And, and that's, that's hopefully what we're all doing as leaders and as individual disciples in the church today. Love it. Uh, so uh, obviously this is uh, published by Desert Book, so they can probably find it at Desert Book, but also yep. online retailers as well. Yep. Published through, it's co-published through BYU's Religious Study Center and with Desert Book together. Yep. Cool. And, and I don't know how this process works, but I mean, should we start seeing some of these images pop up in our material center or <laughs> how does that, I mean, I you don't have know. To be, <laughs> well, well, even saying the church isn't fair, there's various right. branches of the church that procure images to use them. Yeah. So whether they do or don't, uh, every the institutional church ever uses them. Uh, that's not why I painted them. If they if they use them, I'm honored and flattered, and I'm happy happy to have them use them. If they don't, I, I still hope that they can they bless and, and inspire and teach and open up dialogue uh, for you individually and personally. Yeah, and I, I can see this as a great tool, you know, to pull out in a bishopric meeting or ward council and talk about a an image in the history and to, to get things started and invite the spirit. I think it's a, a great opportunity. Yeah. So. Oh, thanks, Kurt. I appreciate it. That concludes my interview with Professor Anthony Sweat. Seriously, go check out this book, Repicturing the Restoration. It actually went out of stock because it's so popular, especially through the holidays. So grab them while it's available. And uh, I know it'll, it'll, give you a helpful perspective, especially during this time as we're studying through Come Follow Me, the the Doctrine and Covenants. There's going to be a lot of great images that you can refer to during your study and, and with your family that'll, that'll heighten that understanding and, and make it uh, a, a more in-depth experience as you study the Doctrine and Covenants. And again, if you want to see many of these images we reference, go to the Instagram account, which we've linked to in the show notes, Leading Saints Instagram account, follow us there. And we've put a post up there with the various images that we discuss. And so you can see it right on your phone. And also Anthony Sweat is a great follow on Instagram as well. He's always uh, talking further about some of these images and, and just his perspective on, on the church history or, or the doctrine in, in general. So he's a great follow as well. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.